Hello, and welcome to the Den of Geek Book Club podcast. My name is Katie Burt, and I am the books editor at denofgeek.com. Today, I am joined by Britta Lundin, who is the author of our next Den of Geek Book Club pick, Ship It. To start, I love if you could give just a brief description of Ship It for anyone who has yet to hear of its uh, awesomeness. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, Ship It is a young adult novel about uh, Claire, who is a teenage fan fiction writer who writes gay fanfic about her favorite show, Demon Heart. Uh, and it's told in two perspectives between Claire and Forrest, who is one of the actors on the show, Demon Heart, who, uh, when he sort of arrives at his very first Comic-Con convention, uh, realizes that the fans seem to be shipping him with his male co-star and he finds that baffling uh, <laughs> and frustrating uh, and, and mostly just confusing. Um, and so he reacts sort of uh, very negatively and that negative reaction goes viral. And then so to sort of like clean up the mess that he's created, uh, the PR team like t- it brings Claire on board for the remainder of the, the Comic-Con tour that the, the press team is going on. And so Claire and Forrest are like joined at the hip and Claire decides, well, I'm going to take this opportunity to convince Forrest why my ship should be canon. And Forrest is like, that's not going to happen. Um, so it's really about like the fan creator relationship um, who has control of these characters once you put them out in the world who gets to decide which characters are gay and which characters aren't um all that good stuff yeah and um where did this idea where did the idea for the story start did it start as a character did it start as you know wanting to represent this world of of fandom a little bit differently than it often is in in mainstream culture yeah like if you can remember where where the origin of the of the story was when it began yeah, I have, I've been in fandom for a very long time, like since middle school. Um, and, uh, so I have, and for most of my life, it's been something that you sort of like, didn't really talk about that. It was like your, mm-hmm. your secret internet thing that you did, but like, you didn't bring it into the real world. You like <laughs> certainly didn't tell like your friends at school about it. Um, it wasn't something that you like blasted or like went on podcast to talk about. Like, no. <laughs> for example, um, for example. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, um, you know, I had started to feel like a few other fandom related books and movies were starting to come out. And, and, and some of them are really good. Like, for example, like Rainbow Rowell's fandom is really good. Um, but it didn't, uh, it didn't feel like my kind of fandom, like it felt like somebody else's kind of fandom. And that's totally valid. But I was like, where's, uh, my experience with fandom and I sort of realized that uh, no one else was going to write that if I didn't <laughs> um, and then the other thing that I was interested in is like at the time I was um, an aspiring screenwriter uh, and I was writing I was working as a Hollywood assistant and I was writing a lot of spec scripts and trying to make it as a TV writer uh, and now I am a TV writer I write on the show Riverdale yay um, and through, yeah, <laughs> and like through that process, I've just learned a lot about the entertainment industry and how it works. And so I was able to see times when fandom was right on the money about how they were reading a scene. And then there were other times where I was like, oh, sometimes fandom 
doesn't totally understand how TV production works or how or the schedules of this or, or, or any of this. And it was it felt like I had this insight that maybe other fans didn't have. And on the entertainment industry side, I had this insight into fandom and like what made them tick and the language and customs of this subculture that like a lot of people who work in the entertainment industry just don't understand at all. Mm-hmm. And so it partially came out of this desire to write a story from two perspectives about two different people coming together and learning to understand each other. Yeah, and I read in uh, another interview with you that the screenplay for Ship It was actually what got your you your writing job on Riverdale. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's true, yeah. Ship yeah. It was originally a screenplay, and I wrote that, and it, it, was, it was really terrifying to write it at first because I was like – if first of all, I was like, no one's ever going to want to read this because it's so gay and personal and specific and <laughs> niche. that I was like, surely no one will be interested in this. And also like the flip side of that, of like the terror of like, what if they are interested in this? And then I have to be like, that's like my brand. It's like my first screenplay out of the gate. It's like my, it's not my first screenplay that I've written, but the first one that gets attention, you know, like what if it gets made? What if I have to like go out there and, and suddenly like gay fan fiction is like Britta Lundin. <laughs> that is <laughs> all that you I, are. <laughs> yeah. It's like taking all of my dirty laundry and like throwing them out for Hollywood to look at and be like, see, what do you think of this? <laughs> um, and then, and then, like the the kind of worst thing happened, which is that uh, people started reading the script and liking it, and like <laughs> wanting to talk to me about it. So I, I my agent read it uh, before he was my agent, and he loved it, and he brought me in, and he started sending me out on meetings, and so I would find myself in these meetings with like Hollywood executives who were like, I don't understand a, a thing about how <laughs> fandom works. Uh, but I loved your script. And I was like, that's pretty good. Like, if if you come into this totally uh, knowing nothing and you come out the end of it, like, shipping a little bit, mm. I feel like that's a, a step in the right direction. So it felt like it was doing some good work. And then my agent sent it into Riverdale, and then they read it and really liked it. And I brought, brought me in to meet with them. And that meeting went well, and I got staffed on Riverdale. And then not long after that, Freeform Books, who is the sort of publishing arm of Freeform the Network, um, and I mentioned that because this is why they were reading screenplays. It's because they're like familiar with screenwriters and TV writers, and they are based in LA and not in New York. Okay. And they had gotten the screenplay, and they were like, "This would be great for a young adult novel. Would you be interested <laughs> in writing that?" And I was like, "Well, yeah." <laughs> Yeah, I would be. That sounds amazing. Um, and so for the last uh, couple of years, I've been working on Riverdale uh, and adapting my screenplay into a young adult novel, which uh, comes out May 1st. Yes. I'm very excited for other people to read yeah. it so I can talk about it with them. Um, but, you know, you're you're adapting it from a screenplay format to a novel format. And you're also, you know, having this experience of being in a writer's room while that process is happening. You talked a little bit about, um, you know, being on both sides of this, like you understand the world of fandom, you understand the world of, of media making. Um, but how, yeah, I'm just guessing curious what kinds of changes, if there were many, um, happened during that period when you're, when you're making, you know, you're making all these changes to the format, but you're also, you have this big change in your, your professional life as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think the biggest change uh, that happened while I was writing the book was that in the course of working on Riverdale, 
TV writing happens at such a brisk pace mm. that you are, uh, you have to break and write and, uh, and complete notes on uh, episodes so quickly, like over you're writing episodes over the course of maybe two, two and a half weeks or something like that. So every, so every two and a half weeks, you're starting a new episode. And uh, that process just teaches you how to break story and get really confident at breaking story quickly. Um, that, uh, that, that creative decisions that might have taken me longer before I got on Riverdale. Now I'm able to look at a creative choice and decide much more quickly. Yes. I think that's going to work or, uh, that might work. Let's test it. Or that's definitely not going to work. That sounds like a writing superpower that I would like to develop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't have it before. And now, um, it's just, it's just when you, when you write that much, that fast, like even in film school, I wasn't writing this much, this fast. Mm-hmm. Um, we've written <clears throat> 22 episodes in the last year and, and, and season one, we wrote 13. So 35 episodes of television over the course of these two years in the same two years that took me to write one book. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like it's just a very different pace. Um, and then you're also in a writer's room with very experienced, skilled writers. And so there were days where I would just kind of look around in wonder. I'd be like, I can't believe how much talent mm-hmm. and experience there is in this room. And my showrunner especially is just very, very good at his job. And so I'd be sitting like, for example, on a notes call uh, and the network would be like, oh, can we uh, change this, this, and this? We don't like this part of Archie's arc or something like that. And I'm thinking, I'm spiraling and I'm going, oh my God, if you change those things, we have to rewrite Archie's story and that affects Betty and Chughead's story. Oh my God, this has to be in Vancouver so they can start shooting like tomorrow. Like, what are we going to do? I'm like hyperventilating. And I could just look at my showrunner and, and I see the gears turning in his head as he's quietly like working out the Rubik's Cube of how to do this. And... And then Roberto will be like, what if we did this, 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 and this? And then, and then I'm like, oh my God, it worked. <laughs> genius. <laughs> it's a genius. He is just so good at like tugging on one little thread and making sure it doesn't unravel the whole thing, uh, 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 fixing it and then weaving it back through. It's just like, it's a superpower. And so, yeah. uh, so that is all definitely, I think while writing ship, I got good at that. And then the other thing is there's, um, you know, Forrest Perspective, who is the um, the actor on the show in the book, and then also the showrunner of the show in the book, mm-hmm. uh, Jamie, who's a, uh, he's his role in the book is as a villain, basically. Yeah. He is the obstacle, the person who refuses to make the ship canon. Um, uh, a lot of times in your, as you're reading the book, you're just supposed to be like, wow, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> but there's a few times in the book where Jamie gets to talk and really explain himself and 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 there's some truth to what he's saying, and I hope that those passages feel um, authentic and and maybe fans who hadn't considered what it's like to be a showrunner understand the pressures and difficulties that Jamie is under, whether that excuses his behavior or not. Like it gives some uh, uh, depth to what he's going through, so he's not just like a one-dimensional like uh, you know jerk who is a homophobe. Um, <laughs> no, I definitely, I definitely think that is, those moments come across. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And all of that comes from like, not just Riverdale, but like all my experiences in the entertainment industry, for sure. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about Claire's character because, um, 
you know, she, there's so many, you, the, you, you mentioned before these uh, young adult novels about fandom that seem to be happening more and more. And they're slowly starting to, um, you know, give other examples of what it is to be like a teen fangirl. But it still feels like there's a lot more examples or ways of looking at teenage girls who are fans of something that are, you know, negative and very stereotypical and just have all these all these misconceptions about what it is to, to care about something as a teen girl. Um, so on one hand, you want to combat those things, but on the other hand, you want to make her into, you know, a real character with flaws and blind spots. So I was just curious about, and, you know, crafting her character where you, you find that balance, I guess, uh, or if that yeah. was hard for you at all. Yeah. Oh, it was definitely hard. Yeah. This is such a good question because I think my first draft of this script, um, Claire didn't make any mistakes yeah. <laughs> at all. And I just was like, so focused on this being like a love letter to fandom and, uh, uh, and you know, a shipping fangirl that she was just like a saint who went through the story <laughs> and everything worked out great for her. And then, you know, my first readers were like, Britta, this isn't a story. Like, <laughs> You just, this is just, this is like, uh, yeah, there's no conflict here. Um, Claire doesn't have any flaws. So you kind of have to start her with flaws so that she has a journey to reach by the end. Um, and so as part of that, you know, I did want to create a loving portrait of fandom. Um, but part of that is acknowledging the times when fandom uh, can overreach. And Claire certainly overreaches at times in this story. And she makes mistakes. Um, and there's times in the story where she does things that make you wince or cringe and be like, Oh, Claire, don't do that. Uh, uh, but that's good. That means you're feeling things like that's what you want in a story, you know? And then hopefully by the end of it, you feel like she has atoned for those things or apologized enough for them. And you hope that she's learned more about appropriate behavior. But yeah, Um, But it goes for every character. Like you don't want like perfect angelic uh, characters Uh, that doesn't make for good drama. And so, um, you know, I I hope that people who know nothing about fandom come out the other side of this book going, um, I I understand a little bit more, you know, she definitely made mistakes, but I understand why she did it. And I understand her motivations and I can see why that's important to her. Yeah, I was very impressed with the balance because I I could imagine, you know, as someone also who cares a lot about fandom and has grown up in fandom, just wanting to, you know, have this person who is the complete opposite of all these all these um, stereotypes, but also, you know, that's that that doesn't make a good story, as you said. So I think you did a good right. job. <laughs> okay, um, thank you. And I loved I love that Forrest was as much of a of a part of this book and gets to be a point of view character as well. And it feels like that completely changes how, you know, how the story is told and where it, where it strikes its balance in, in terms of fandom and canon and all these different players. Um, so was it hard for you in some ways to write Forrest's character because you, you know, it's been so long since you didn't know what fandom was or fan fiction was or, hmm. yeah, I don't know. I, cause maybe, yeah, that, no. Yeah. And maybe did no, it help you too- understand or yeah. Think about, those people you have conversations with who are there at yeah. that point now today. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and a lot, 
a lot of Forrest's questions in the book. Like he's sort of like, if you don't know anything about fandom going into the book, Forrest asks some basic like fandom one-on-one kind of questions. And a lot of those are questions that are directly from the mouths of like dudes in my writer's groups, mm-hmm. you know, like who were like, I don't, I'm sorry, can you just explain shipping to me? Like I'm a kindergartner. Like, okay, yeah, for sure. Let's have a scene where we explain shipping <laughs> in a, a like fun, entertaining way. But like that scene exists so that people who don't know or who think shipping is just like the USPS, like uh, on the other side, understand. Um, and, and, and Forrest has some really basic questions about like sexuality too. And, and Tess, who is, um, a fan artist in the book, who is Claire's agent, who Claire meets along the way and sort of like falls for, um, has very sort of advanced Tumblr speak knowledge of different sexualities and how sexuality works. Um, and this is too all new for Forrest. And so he has like really basic questions about like, wait, how many genders are there? And, and stuff like that, <laughs> yeah. that test explains. Um, and, uh, and that's there because, you know, these are, these are basic questions. And if you've lived in like Tumblr fandom for the last eight years or however long Tumblr fandom has been a thing, <laughs> um, you might be like super, super advanced, like graduate level student in uh, the language of like fandom and also the language of like social justice and, and sexuality mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. But like for someone who uh, is hasn't been spending the last decade of their life, like entrenched in internet communities, like this is all still brand new. And so to be like gentle with those people and like, help them along on their journey rather than like rejecting them was really important to me. Like I wanted this book to feel accessible to people who are like maybe interested in this topic or wanted to learn more, even if they never read a fanfic in their life, like want to understand the world and and what, why it's important to people. Yeah. I like that it has those multiple entry points and I do hope that people who aren't as familiar with fandom um, find this book because it's very kind and how it, and how it like brings Forrest along, I think. Good, good. Yeah. And I did, I mean, I like that. I also like that you, you know, Claire's story isn't just about her exploration of her fan identity, but also her exploration of her sexual identity. Can you talk about how those two processes can be related or at least how they were for you maybe? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I started reading gay fan fiction years before I identified as gay myself Mm -hmm. and I think and Claire's doing the same thing like over the course of this book she's she meets Tess and in meeting Tess is forced to sort of take a closer look at her own sexuality and whether or not she could be queer and that's like really scary and intense for her Um, and yet she uh, is like an avid supporter of this gay ship like mm-hmm. to the point that she's like harassing the <laughs> showrunner of her show to get him to make the canon like in an uncomfortable way um she, so so like it to, to maybe an outside observer they're like uh duh why are you so obsessed with this gay ship are you gay <laughs> and at first in the beginning of the story like her mom asked her this and she's like god no shut up <laughs> And then, you know, she meets Tess and she's like, well, maybe, but that's scary to admit and scary to think about. And sexuality is so squishy and hard to define. And 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 you never really know. Uh, it's like it's feelings, right? So you don't know what's real and, and what's not. And, and it's not hard and concrete. Um, and so 
so you but shipping shipping something can be hard in concrete like you can mm. watch a show and be like look at the way these two guys look at each other they're in love <laughs> this guy won't make a canon because he's a homophobe like that's like really clear cut and easy for claire to understand mm-hmm. and it's like the world isn't that black and white um and neither is human sexuality and so like part of Claire's journey is just like learning nuance and trying to be comfortable with the uncertainty um, and the shades of gray in everything. And so I hope that, I mean, I've met a lot of people in slash fandom who have like come to understand their own sexuality through reading gay fan fiction. And certainly something that helped me along the way, like when I was in high school, there just weren't barely any gay people on television at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but like you could find gay storytelling, it was all happening in fan fiction on the internet, and it like a wealth of it. And there were all kinds of characters, and they were doing all kinds of things. And you could find happy stories, or sad stories, or like adventurous stories, or many, many, many stories of falling in love. Uh, and so, like, that was something that was really helpful to me when I was younger. And uh, I think that's something that's helpful for Claire, too, even though she doesn't quite realize it yet at the beginning of the story, that that's maybe why this this ship is so important to her. Yeah. And um, you include, you know, you have excerpts from Claire's uh, slash fic, and you also, of the, of the two characters in Demon Heart, and you also have excerpts of the real person fic that she writes about the two actors. And I know that's a particularly... Mm-hmm hard part of fandom for some people to understand even people maybe who read um fan fiction of fictional characters and i yeah i was wondering if you had any pushback against that or and or like why you wanted to include real person fic in in the world of ship it yeah i mean i i it, i wouldn't say i had pushback from it but i did have a conversation with my editor about mm-hmm. it when when i did it um uh and she was like is this okay and my response was, um, I, I, when you're writing real person fic, you're writing, I know real person is right there in the title and ostensibly you're writing about real people, but you're kind of not. You're mm-hmm. writing about the fictionalized public personas of real people. And so it's not really real person fic. Real person fic would be like if you wrote about your mom and dad or (laughs) your best friend. Like that would really be real person fic, right? And so there's a point in the book where Claire, um, she first she writes real person fic that I think is okay. Um, uh, That's just like kind of straightforward RPF. That And the purpose of that fic in the book is to take people who maybe haven't shipped a gay ship before mm-hmm. and to like tug them along a little bit. And hopefully by the end of that fic, there's a little part of their heart, it, it, it like cuts out right before they kiss. Mm-hmm. And then I, I want them to have a little part of their heart being like, oh, wait, oh, no, I wanted them to kiss. <laughs> And if they feel even a little bit, then they're shipping and then I've got them hooked. You know what I mean? (laughs) So that's there purely to just like make people want to ship it. And then later in the book, once she gets to know Forrest uh, and and kind of uh, learns more stuff about him, she writes another RPF. And for me, this one crosses the line Mm. because she throws stuff into that RPF that's personal, like personal details he told her. And suddenly she's not writing about the fictionalized public persona of Forrest. 
she's writing about Forrest, the guy she knows, and that and putting it on blast for the internet to read. And that's crossing a line. And so that's like one of the big oversteps that she makes in the course of the book that by the end she has to apologize for and atone for. And um, when I discussed this with my editor, I was I was clear about like, I think that her mistake is not in writing RPF. I think there's no harm in writing RPF. I love RPF. Do you know how much Harry Louis fic I've read? So oh, much. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But, uh, I mean, this book is basically RPF, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but but I think, you know, in, in using like personal information, she's no longer writing RPF, the genre she's like writing, she's, she's writing about the real person for us and that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so that was like a kind of a nuanced conversation about the ethics of RPF that I had to have with my editor who really didn't know that much about fandom before she started. And by the end she was like, okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, and so I'm curious if Demon Heart was modeled after any show in particular, or if it's just an amalgamation of a lot of different series and fandoms. Yeah, it's an amalgamation. It's it's supposed to feel familiar to anyone mm. who's ever been in a fandom for like a small genre uh, TV show with a big fandom. So, you know, there's like a, a sprinkling of, of Buffy in there. Like a, there's like a little angel. There's a little uh, supernatural. There's a splash of Teen Wolf. There's a little, um, you know, like Stucky in there. Mm. There's um, there's just like a, a, a lot of ingredients going into that pot. But really, it's just supposed to be about um, two guys who, like, even like the most oblivious outsider could like hear the description for the show and be like, Oh yeah, I can understand why people ship that. And the show's about like a demon hunter and a demon who has a heart. So he's not like other demons. Uh, and so they're like, it's enemies to lovers basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they're like joined at the hip and they have to fight together and, and they hate each other. And it's like, okay, so that's just like a recipe for shipping. <laughs> How do you not ship that? And um, most of the book is set at different cons, um, which is, you know, a very specific and intense part of fan culture. So I, I was curious about your own history with cons. Like, did you get a chance, have a chance to go to cons as a fan before you got more um, like ensconced in this world? Or has your experience there been more so as a creator? Although I think as someone who goes for press as press, I am both a fan and a press person. So it's complicated. Yeah, it is complicated. Yeah, um, I grew up in a very small town in Oregon where um, I didn't even really know about conventions Mm. um, when I was younger. And then, um, so I didn't really get a chance to go to conventions until like, you know, five or six years ago when once I moved to Los Angeles and I was had access to uh, to go to things like WonderCon and um, Kamikaze and, and uh, comic-con and uh so i've for for like yeah for maybe the last five or six years i've been going pretty regularly and it's been uh great because i go i get i can get a pass because i'm an industry member but i'm really going as a fan i'm not mm. really going, like, <laughs> like going this is my cover favorite things. yeah it's my cover it's like oh yes uh I, I guess i will be on a panel but only so i can get a free badge <laughs> so i can go see all my favorite people talk yeah, yeah. I, I, there was just a lot I could relate to about this book, and um, it made me, it made me excited about about going to Comic Con this year. So that's always good. Um, yeah, I, the exciting thing about conventions is that 
is that it's just purely a place where people who like love things more than they should be loving them all congregate to love those things like <laughs> together with other people, which is the coolest thing it's just like enthusiasm mm -hmm. the gathering <laughs> yeah 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 like the energy That's of being in those spaces is is yeah. unlike anything else yeah it's great um and ever okay so ever since seeing call me by your name i've been thinking a lot about stories about good parenting and it seems like <laughs> you know especially in a lot of like television teen stuff but i think a lot of teen stuff in general the parents tend to be like at best just kind of like not aware of what's going on and at worst, I don't know, just not great. <laughs> so I really mm -hmm. liked that this, this book has like some really great parents um, and that Trudy is like, like kind of like the secret superhero of this book and is just having a great time mm -hmm. throughout, which is wonderful. Um, but yeah, I was curious about that decision. And like, did you always know that Claire would have like these good parents and that they would just be this like supportive force in, in her life? Yeah. Um, yeah, I really wanted Claire's. So what Claire's struggling with is she she meets Tess and she's trying to figure out, is she queer or is this just like a one time thing? And her fear is, you know, she could come out and her mom would be like, congratulations, honey. That's great. I love you. Let's start going to pride parades <laughs> and like. I'm putting a bumper sticker on my car and I'm going to paint you an oil painting. That's you, but your face is also a rainbow flag. Like, I don't know. She's like going to take it to the extreme because she's just that supportive. Yeah. And then, and Claire's fear is like, what if I never meet anyone else? Another girl again that I like, like, what if this is a one-time thing? And then later I have to like walk it back or uncome out or like, what does that look like? She's so young that she hasn't had enough experiences in her life yet where she can draw a pattern yet. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know am I gay? Am I bi? Pansexual? Like Tess knows exactly who she is and Claire has no idea. And so having supportive parents is great. And it's also this kind of obstacle for her because it feels like such a <coughs> And I wanted to make sure that like, I mean, there are, there are stories out there um, about gay kids who can't don't feel safe to come out because their parents aren't supportive. And those are really important and valid stories. Um, but I also wanted a, a story about somebody who's like, that isn't her primary concern. Mm. Uh, she knows her parents will support her and she's very lucky in that way, but she still, that doesn't mean her life is perfect. And like, this is all roses now like that. That's not the only concern like uh, closeted gay kids have is she's got all these other worries to deal with. And, and thank God she doesn't have to worry about unsupportive parents. But like on top of that, it's like, OK, well, things have just begun now. So in the middle part of this book, for some reason, I was very worried about um, Katie or Paula, like manipulating Claire. And I was thinking back about that after I finished the book, just to think like, was it, is it because they're publicists? And I have all these, like, there's these tropes about publicists. Is it because they're like these other women? And, and I'm, I think that, yeah, for some reason they're, there are these patterns that made me think that that was something that was going to happen. But Katie ended up being, you know, one of my favorite characters in the book and felt, yeah, just like unlike a lot of other characters I've seen, especially like supporting characters. Um, so I wasn't, yeah, were, was Katie always like so supportive of Claire? And like, what, how did you, how did you construct that like 
kind of like world of publicity of publicists um, because yeah, it is like a complicated um, kind of like chaotic neutral, like part of this part of this world that ends up being, being, you know, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, Katie has gone through several iterations in the course of writing this over the many drafts of screenplay and then book. Um, in an early draft, she used to be the assistant to Jamie, the showrunner, mm. uh, who sort of also thought he was an asshole and secretly helped Claire on the side. Um, but then um, I really did want to dive into this idea of the role there's like really three competing ideas in the book. There's uh, Claire's idea of from the fan side of like, she, t- she takes the show that's given to her and she interprets it the way she wants to. And then there's, um, you know, Forrest and Jamie who are on the creator side who are involved in creating the show. And then there's this third wheel to this tricycle, which is uh, publicity and marketing and Paula and Katie are the ones in charge of like sort of facilitating what the show looks like and, and how it's presented to the world. And um, Paula gives a sort of impassioned speech at one point in the book where she's like, you think my job isn't important because it's just publicity, mm. but without people watching your show would just exist in a vacuum and no one would care. So the reason you have a job is because I'm out there like making sure people watch your show. And Claire's one of the people who watches the show. So each one of these three legs like needs the other. And so that was important to me. And then the other thing that I wanted to do was, Katie, uh, Paul is just like, uh, smart and, mm. and that's why she understands things, but Katie understands things because she's, uh, a fan, like kind of, a, a undercover, but she's a fan and, uh, and she's also queer. And so part of, part of what I wanted to do with the character of Katie is show Claire that in her future, like there is, um, a place in the entertainment industry for people like her, Mm -hmm. people who understand fandom and uh, are also queer and have maybe an agenda. Uh, There are jobs out there that, and uh, career options in the entertainment industry. You don't have to feel closed off from it. And I think at the beginning of the story, Claire feels very closed off. She feels like she wants one thing from the show and the show's saying no. And she's like saying, okay, well maybe the entertainment industry doesn't care about people like me. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, it can. We're just slowly trying to make a difference in it. I think Katie's probably the character that's closest to how I feel mm-hmm. when I'm in the entertainment industry. It's like it's hard to make big sweeping change, but here and there you can help one person and make uh, small changes here and there. And so I, I sort of that's sort of my plea, not just to Claire, but to like all the fangirls who are reading this book, being like, if you're interested in helping to change the media landscape, not just through fan fiction, but also from the inside, like there's a place for you here. I'm doing it. My fictional character Katie is doing it. <laughs> <laughs> like you're welcome here let's try to change it together um and were there any characters or scenes or subplots that didn't make it into the book that you're just really sad about and you really tried to get in there but just didn't happen um well there's been (laughs) several scenes rico is is the the i love rico (laughs) yeah He's, he's, yeah, he's wonderful. He's the guy who's, who Forrest is being shipped with. That's the actor's name. And, um, 
and he kind of like quote unquote gets it mm. like you could kind of tell from the beginning that he's like understands exactly what's going on he's a little bit more experienced he's been on another genre tv show he's like been to comic cons before he understands what's happening whereas Forrest is like totally out of his depth uh <laughs> and just sort of floundering um and so there was like lots of scenes that involved rico that ultimately was like if rico is too involved in the book then then uh then Forrest, like, it becomes too easy mm. for Claire to, like, convince Forrest because Rico also kind of gets it. So part of my job as a writer was just to keep Rico busy somewhere else so that Claire <laughs> He didn't Forrest, just solve all so that, the problems. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, yeah, because otherwise it's, it's, it's a little too simple. And also, like, I didn't want Rico to also be oblivious because if he was, then Claire would have to a change two grown men's minds and it felt like even changing one grown man's mind was like a daunting enough task mm-hmm. and so you know Rico's just there he understands what's going on but he's off enjoying the convention and being like a big fanboy himself um so he's just like really fun to write for and I can imagine well I don't want to assume that anyone will write fanfic about my book <laughs> but if I were writing fanfic about my book I would just write a ton of Rico scenes because he's just so much fun yeah <laughs> I like to imagine Rico and Trudy just like hanging out, oh, like God. doing con That's things together, silly. just having a good time. <laughs> yeah. um, That's like a whole montage that I would love to see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a moment in the book when Claire admits that her first fandom was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is a great moment. Uh-huh. Um, so I was curious what your first fandom was. Oh, yeah. I feel <laughs> like um, I wrote that scene because I've met so many people who have like unusual first fandoms because like you can't really choose your first fandom it just kind of happens um and and you sometimes people they just have like the weirdest first ones Mm -hmm. and then they kind of fall into bigger like more common fandoms usually but my first fandom was really big one it was uh the x-files which Mm -hmm. i discovered in seventh grade and like went hard on (laughs) like like I feel like I saw one episode and like the next day I was writing Dana Scully Dana Scully Dana Scully (laughs) like a hundred times in my math homework you know I mean like it was like immediate I was in love with it yeah and I like went on the like uh decrepit ancient internet like probably dial up well it was definitely dial up at that time uh (laughs) and like asked uh, you know, Alta Vista uh, for more information about the X-Files <laughs> and <laughs> found myself on like old message boards, like arguing with other people about whether Mulder and Scully were in love or not. Mm-hmm. Um, spoiler alert, they're in love, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, as someone who was also a middle school X-Files fan who wrote, I love the X-Files and block letters across my tech ed uh, folder. I can, I can relate to that story. It feels Amazing. like sometimes you think you're like, you know, you're living your own life, you're your own person, and then you hear details about other people's lives, and you're like, maybe, yeah, there's a lot of people in this world, and some of us are living very similar similar paths. <laughs> yeah, I just wish, like, one other person like that had gone to my small rural high school. Yeah. Because, like, it's just, like, I like, there were other people who watched the show, but there was no one who, like, went as hard as I did. Mm-hmm. And I just remember feeling very alone. Like, I could, like, kind of casually be like, oh, hey, did you catch the X-Files <laughs> last night? And the other person would be like, oh, I missed it. I was hanging out with my friend. And I was like, what do you mean you were hanging out with your friend? Like, You're like, you prioritize the X-Files. Yeah. yeah. I would, like if you missed an episode you had to wait until reruns that summer like there was no netflix like that was it 
I would recap um, episodes of Alias for my friend when she missed them. Just like write, yeah. write out everything that happened. But um, yeah. I actually really liked the details about the rural school because I too went to a school with farm kids. And um, yeah, just like the differences in what it's like to be a fan in a small town that is pretty removed from spheres of cultural influence versus what it's like to be a fan even in like Boise, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, I really enjoyed those details. Um, yeah, thank you. I don't know how relatable that'll be to the general public, but it was definitely my experience. Yeah. So I'm like, yep, it's going in the book. Fandom has moved quickly, and which is good, which is a good thing. But it does seem like the experience of being a fan yeah. or teenage fan today has changed a bit from from even like 10 or 15 years ago. So, yeah. Um, so I did want to shift a little bit towards, I guess I'm curious about your role as, as someone who identifies as a fan in this world of media and like what, what that looks like in the, in the Riverdale writer's room or like other similar spaces. Like, do you guys talk about fandom? Is that, is that part of the conversation? Um, I don't, I don't even know what role it would play in the conversation, but I do feel like it's definitely not in a lot of TV writers' rooms. So, yeah, I'm just right, curious right. about how that identity of yours does or doesn't affect your 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 job in that way. Yeah, it's like uh, Liverdale obviously has a very uh, passionate and invested fan base, which is amazing, uh, especially for me, like being a fan and then working on a show that has a bunch of fans is just like incredibly exciting. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it it in terms of like how much it comes up in a, at work. It comes up in the way of like like sometimes someone will will bring in some fan art that they found mm-hmm. that they think is really cool. Or like uh, there's one fan art who like sent us fan art of us the writers, Aww. which was like amazing, <laughs> and like everyone was like screaming about it in the office. And, like, we have some, like, fan art posted around and stuff like that. So we have, like, that kind of symbiotic relationship with the fans. Uh, Most of our interaction with fans, I would say, comes on episode nights because we all get together and we live tweet the episode Mm -hmm. together on the East Coast feed. Um, And so we are, like, on Twitter with the fans, all using the hashtag, like, responding to them, um, like, screaming about the same things. And that feels like the time when I feel, like, closest to them, where Mm. I'm like, we're all in this together. And a lot of times I've seen the episodes, sometimes multiple times before they go to air. But occasionally, like, when we get really busy, I will be very familiar with the script, but watching it live with the fans is the first time I've ever seen the episode in its completed form. And so like, that can be a really exciting experience of like, Oh my God, they shot it like that. Oh, it looks beautiful. I didn't know they were going to be wearing that. Oh my God. I can't believe they used the crane for this shot. Like there's so much when you see it brought to life. That's really exciting. Um, And so we kind of get like a live reaction from fans during that experience of like, we kind of understand what they like and don't like just from, being on Twitter with them while they watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it do, like, it doesn't, I think, I think maybe sometimes fans think that, that what they say can affect the show a little bit more than it does mm-hmm. or even can. We are writing the show so far ahead of what, what the fans are seeing. Like we're frequently four or five episodes ahead of what's being aired is what we're writing. So if they react to something and they're like, oh, we hate that storyline, it's like, oh, sorry, you have five more episodes of that to <laughs> yeah. watch. And you can only really turn the ship to- so so quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's 
it's yeah, it's like a, a, a steam liner, and yeah. it doesn't turn very quickly. Um, uh, and the, but also, you just you can't even react to that because you you if you were to halt, put the brakes on a storyline <laughs> that maybe in those next five episodes they'd really come around to it because you've really fleshed it out and developed mm. it and then start to see why you made those decisions in the first place. And so, and then if it ended abruptly five episodes later, because after the first episode they didn't said they didn't like it, <laughs> everything would be like really jilty and weird. And you just, you can't, that's not a way to write television. Mm-hmm. The, I think the only way to do it, you have to trust your own instincts. Uh, uh, Roberto is really smart about, his creative vision and so you know he he ends up just making creative decisions based on what he thinks um are going to be the best for the show what he thinks people will like and then we write it to the best of our ability and then you just hope that people agree with you (laughs) to a certain extent that's all you can do yeah Um, we can like squeak with the fans on the internet but we can't really react to them uh in any real sense in that way yeah, and it's it's pretty amazing that you wrote this book about the need to see more queer representation on TV. And since then, you've you know gotten to become an active part of writing a queer romance on Riverdale. Yeah. Uh, what, what does that even feel like? <laughs> it's amazing. It feels amazing. I mean, I guess this is light spoilers for season two if you're not caught up. But <laughs> this who is cares? good. You're I always like ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if you're a Tumblr. Or, yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah this season um it, we got to the opportunity to take cheryl blossom who was a character who in season one i think most people assumed was straight um because of compulsory heterosexuality and also <laughs> because she kissed party. um uh and in season two be like oh psych uh this person's actually queer we gave her a queer backstory and we give her a girlfriend uh tony topaz who's a member of the south side serpents uh, and they just have this really great chemistry and this really lovely dynamic between Cheryl, who's always, you know, sort of coiffed and perfect and has the lipstick and everything, and Tony, who, like, rides a motorcycle and has a leather jacket and has a very sort of, like, gritty appeal to her. Mm. Um, it's a really fun romance. And that that we sort of built it up over several episodes in the episode where they finally kiss and get together um, was the episode I wrote with Brian Patterson. And it was just, like, amazing to be part of that and to feel like I was ushering this queer ship into reality, into canon, canondom, uh, and to be on set while we were shooting, uh, all the lead up to that kiss scene. And then the scene was just like way more emotional than I thought it would be. It was Mm. like, I mean, this is literally why I became a TV writer was to like put more gay people on TV and (laughs) and to be present in the room while it was happening was just like sort of magical and momentous. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you mentioned Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell, um, which is a great book. Um, or I enjoyed it. And after she wrote, um, you know, fangirl, she wrote carry on, which is based completely in the Mm -hmm. world of the Simon Snow fan fiction that the fangirl in fangirl is writing. Um, would you ever want to write a book set completely in the world of demon heart fan fiction? Because I would, I would read it. I mean, it sounds amazing. (laughs) I, I, I wrote the TV show within the book, uh, 
enough that I feel like I know the characters. I know the main conflicts. I basically have the arc of the first season <laughs> mapped out. Uh, I, I have a little mini Bible in my head. Oh, I think nice. it could be a book or it could also just, you know, call me CW. We can put this on the air tomorrow. Oh, like, man. Just, yeah, you just, just like upped it in the best way possible. I'm like, would you write a book? And you're like, no, we're making this television show. We're making it a show. It can go seven seasons. <laughs> <laughs> Supernatural length. We'll, we'll go even farther yeah, than that. we'll go 14 seasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it seems like you kind of like stumbled into, you know, the YA novel world, um, you know, having started this as a, as a screenplay. But now that you've written, written this, would you like to write other kinds of novels? Or are you mostly just focused on... You know, you do a lot of writing, obviously, in other in other mm-hmm. mediums. So, is that where your focus is right now? Um, yeah, I mean, we're starting to write season three of Riverdale next week, and so my focus on the moment is on that. But I, for sure, am interested in in writing more books. It's been interesting when I when I started writing Ship It, I was like, well, I'll just try this and see if I like it. Um, and no promises. And I never have to write another book if I don't want to. Mm. Um, and I, I just could feel like I would meet more and more authors and their journey to getting published was usually like, well, I wrote, you know, eight manuscripts and I <laughs> got uh, 500 rejections. Um, but I'm finally here. I'm finally getting published after a decade of trying. And I was like, ooh, someone read my screenplay and asked me to write it <laughs> and threw money at me until I did it. And I, I, like, I <laughs> guess, I guess I'll write yeah, this. Yeah, I know. It makes me feel like a jerk. But, you know, I, I did have that decade of struggle yeah. uh, just don't, on the screenwriting side, not on not on the manuscript side. But, um, but because of that, I was sort of like, well, I don't know if publishing, like, maybe I should leave it to these people who it really is their dream, you know. Mm. And then in the course of writing this book, I kind of was like, oh, I understand why people write books now. I understand why this is addictive, because you get to make so many creative decisions in the course of writing a book that you don't necessarily get to make when you're writing for TV, because it is such like a a team effort and not just because we have 10 writers plus a showrunner on the writing side, but it's also a team effort in terms of like the look of the show you're relying on, you know, the camera department and you know, what, <laughs> what the locations you're relying on the locations department and what, um, what you can afford and um, what locations are available to you in whatever city you're filming in because of, you know, and you're filming in that city because of tax credits. So, and you know, you, the actor has you, the look of the character has to match one of these actors who came in to read for you. Mm. But in a book, it's like all stemming from your imagination. There's no budget to limit what locations you can go to. Um, anyone can look like whatever idea you have in your head. Anyone can wear anything, whether it's a real outfit or not. <laughs> like there's, there's no limitations. And so for that reason, it feels like a very luxurious way to write. It's mm-hmm. just like, what do you want to happen? You can make it happen in fiction. It's really fun. So yes, the short answer is yes. I would be open <laughs> to writing another book. <laughs> it's really, right, really all, fun. All of the things and all of the mediums. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I always like to ask people I interview what they're a fan of right now, but that just seems even more <laughs> relevant to this conversation. So yeah, what are, what are you into right now? Whether, I guess, yeah, whether it's, are you into a fandom? Are you into, cause I, I think that I do think of being a fan as like, there are different layers and like, sometimes I'm a fan of a fandom and sometimes I'm more of a fan of, of, yeah. of the story itself. So what are, yeah. How do you spend your time as a fan these days? Um, uh, well, I will say 
<laughs> trying to decide like just how <laughs> honest I want to be with this question. Yeah. I feel free say, to strike I, anywhere on the honesty spectrum. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I will say the, okay, I'll tell you the last three fandoms I read fan fiction for okay. uh, all in the last month. <laughs> um, uh, Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I really, the thing I enjoy most about um, the Harry Styles fandom is Harry is so, you know, I work in the entertainment industry. And so sometimes, you know, like I can't get too deep into a fandom for someone who I'm literally like a coworker with, you know, mm-hmm. or someone who like walk, could walk down my hall at, at the CW any minute, you know? So that, it, it makes it a challenge because, because to be a fan of something, you need a certain element of like wonder or a certain element of, of magic. Yeah. You and need a me, distance like, to a certain extent. You need extent. a distance. Yeah. Yeah. You do. You do. And you don't want anyone being like, oh, I ran into that guy in the bathroom. He was a real jerk to me. You're like, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> well, now I can't. Come on, man. You know? And so I'm like seeking out things that I, I don't have a personal connection to. And so what's great about Harry Styles is he's so such a unicorn who's so far from being approachable to me. Like there's no way he's going to walk down the hallway. There's no way I can bump into him. All I can do is like buy a ticket to one of his shows and sit in the audience and fawn like the rest of the the fans. So I (laughs) love that. I love that. Um, So uh, that's fun. And then um, I also still, uh, I feel like this died down after uh, the second movie, but I still really love Finn and Poe. Um, Storm Pilot is great. Um, I I love it more than Raylo. Although if Raylo's your thing, no judgment here. Um, but that's not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, well said. Uh, and then um, uh, I will say uh, I've I've I obsessively watched season one of uh, The Bold Type, mm, and I yeah. think what they're doing with uh, I'm just like not really used to having. Um, a gay ship be canon and mm. so uh, it's still sort of like awe inducing to me that Kat and Adina were a thing on that show so if you haven't seen it it's a show about three best friends all women who are like in their 20s and working at a magazine that's sort of like Cosmo that's called Scarlet um, and they each have slightly different jobs at the magazine and one of them uh, Kat uh uh, is just like a fun, funny, uh, kind of whip-smart character. She's black, and she doesn't think she's gay, but she meets this um, photographer uh, and who's, um, I forget what country she's from, but she's Muslim, and she uh, is in America, and she's like doing a story for her, and then she starts to fall for her, and it's kind of a similar story to Ship It!, where she's like, what does this mean for me? Am I gay? She and her two friends talk about everything and they like, uh, you know, dissect it all together and they're super supportive. And it's just like a show about great female friendships and also has this wonderful queer storyline all through season one. Season two is about to start airing and I can't wait. I hope they go a lot further with Kat and Adina. Yeah. Those are great recommendations. Um, Yeah. And so where can people find you either, you know, in real life or online, which is also real life, but you know, <laughs> got to make the distinction somehow, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, in real life, please don't seek me out. That would be weird. <laughs> um, online, you can find me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at British Shipsit. I'm on uh, Instagram as Brittle and Dean. I'm on Tumblr as Brittle and Dean. Uh, there's really only one Brittle and Dean, so you can find me. <laughs> and, um, 
Uh, and the book Ship It comes out uh, May 1st. And it will be, you know, in bookstores everywhere. You Find your local indie bookstore. But if you don't have one of those, it's on Amazon. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today and, and writing this novel. <laughs> well, thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure. 